We're back to Author's Corner on the Toll Education Network. Again, tolltutor.net for more information. Twitter, Toll Tutor, Neil S. Haley, Facebook. LinkedIn, Neil Haley, Instagram, Total Tutor, and Pinterest, Neil Haley. And what's really interesting is I call it the Total Celebrity Show as well because this is an absolute honor to have this man on the program. When you talk about three-time All-Star, two-time World Series champion, 1980 All-Star MVP, again, his son is Ken Griffey Jr., so I'm so excited to welcome the program, author of Big Red Baseball, Fatherhood, My Life in the Big Red Machine, Ken Griffey Sr. Ken Griffey, how are you, man? I'm doing fine. Doing real well right now out in Arizona. I uh, just got finished up with a mini camp for the Reds uh, for the draft choices that we had this uh, past June, so I'm enjoying myself. Well, I'm sure you are, and always, I guess, around the game, you enjoy that for sure, right? Baseball is definitely part of your life for sure. Oh, yes. (laughs) Uh, Absolutely, Ken. So I really wanted to break down. I mean, this book is just amazing. When you think about the history that you're going to be talking about, you talk about first your life with the big red machine, which, again, I guess every Cincinnati red, those years were very memorable for them, weren't they? Oh, yes. You know, I was I was very young in, in terms of young in age. In terms, of, I was 25. My first big uh, full big year, full uh, year in the big leagues, and we ended up winning the World Series that year. And then '76 was the same way. We repeated, and I just enjoyed being in Cincinnati. Those uh, you know first 11 years of my career, uh, being I was drafted by him uh, in '69, uh, and then I was able to play for him, got to the big leagues won two world championships with them. You know, it was just enjoyable for me. And what did you think of playing in Cincinnati? Again, especially being with the Reds organization now, what a a town to play baseball in, isn't it? Oh, it was a a baseball town at that time. I mean, that's all you talked about. The Bengals were struggling, and we were were winning. So it was a big opportunity for a young guy to come in and break in that lineup and be able to play every day in, in, in Cincinnati. So it was a great time for me. One thing you did mention in your book is this, especially Game 6 of the 1975 World Series. Can you share a little bit of that recollection? Well, the recollection, you know, I had a, I had a pretty good day. I think I was uh, two for five. I had two hits. I know that one was a double to tie the game up where we went ahead in the game. And the biggest onside was the, the fact that you're sitting there watching Bernie Carbo come up to pitch hit, and he takes one of the weirdest swings you ever want to see a uh, hitter take. And the very next swing, he takes a perfect swing and hits a three-run homer to tie the game up. And then we go into the 12th inning, and that, that's that famous Carl Fist home run where he's waving the ball fast to stay fair, and it stayed. <laughs> and they beat us in the sixth game. But, you know, we knew we had uh, the seventh game to go, so we, we, weren't, we weren't planning on losing that seventh game. And that's interesting to talk about, for sure, because probably a lot of people that are you know, not really baseball historians would thought, based on what Carlton Fisk did, that, that the Reds lost, and they really won. So, you know, that's one of the biggest memories in baseball history, and yet, really, you guys won it, so... <laughs> Yeah, you know the strangest thing is that I, I was looking at an article and 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 uh, one day I was reading that that, that uh, Boston Red Sox 1975 hat was being sold as a memorabilia item for the 70, 76 I mean 75 World Series 
And I said, well, you know, the funny part was that Boston didn't win. <laughs> you know, And they weren't selling the Red Hats for the 75 World Series. They were selling the Boston Boston uh, Red Sox hats for the 75 World Series. So, you know, that image left, uh, 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 I guess, um, that image of Carlton Fisk, him waving that home run, and they won the game on that pitch. Uh, a lot of people thought Boston won the World Series, which, you know, we knew we had to go game seven, and that's when we beat them in game seven. What do you think uh, made your team so special in 75 and 76? What would you say? Well, what made it so special was that everyone knew exactly what they had to do. We played hard every night. We had a lot of fun. I think that was the most important, that we played the game as a game. And we had a lot of fun doing it. If somebody made a mistake and it looked funny or something like that, a lot of guys laughed. We had some pranksters. Tony Perez kept everybody in the lineup. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Tony was the guy that, you know, he was the what we called the Reggie Jackson. He was the one that stirred the that was a straw that stirred the drink. So, so Doggy was the one that kept everybody um, up, live, ready to go every night, and ready to play, and had and had a lot of fun doing it. Absolutely, and it's something that you know that's the memories, and that's a team, and 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 I I really like this year in sports because I think it's the greatest years of teams in a long time. When you think about two sports for sure, and 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 I bring up the uh, NBA Finals and seeing a team in the Spurs, and I also look at the team atmosphere of the Seattle Seahawks, and just to say, finally we're we're hopefully getting back to team play, and you guys were definitely a team. It wasn't just one superstar that made you guys. For sure. No, no. And, and, you know, a lot of credit, you know, uh, people don't give our pitching staff any credit. But I think, you know, those guys kept us always in the game. They gave us an opportunity. We knew we had a damn good offense. We knew we had a good offense. And the, the difference was that our pitching staff, Jack Billingham, uh, Don Gullett, uh, Freddie Norman, Gary Nolan, I mean, they kept us always in the, in the game where we had an opportunity to win in the seventh and eighth, ninth inning, which was amazing during that 162 game season. I mean, those guys were outstanding. We had Raleigh Eastwick as, a, as our bullpen stopper, as a, a Pat Darcy, Clay Carroll, um, Will McEnany, Pedro Ravone. I mean, those guys don't get any credit, but they were the ones that really deserve a lot of credit because they kept us in games. Absolutely, and that team atmosphere is what wins, and that's what wins what wins championships in baseball, and that's why it's such a great sport because you can't just have one superstar dominate everything. It won't happen, no. especially because of pitching and different things, and that's what makes baseball special where you can see runs like years of uh, teams that really didn't have the talent compared to the other teams but yet got on a roll, got the right pitching, and then there you have it, a world championship for sure. Uh, would you say, uh, Ken, again, uh, after 75 and 76, uh, what do you think, how hard was it to kind of, after repeating as champions, to keep getting back and, and playing hard every year in, in your career after that? Because you've already tasted the greatest thing in the world, which is winning a world championship. Well, it wasn't too hard to get back to the, the thing was after we left, you know, they started dismantling the team. They first went with Tony Perez. They traded Tony. And like I said, Tony was kind of the guy that kept everything going. I mean, he kept everybody playing out on the field, uh, and, and, and he made it enjoyable to be around since then. When we lost him, he was kind of our attitude and our backbone of our ball club. And we lost him in a trade to Montreal. And then the next year we lost Pete. I mean, you know, it was tough, but you got you you know, you still got to go out there and try to win. I mean, we we 
We came back in '79 and won our division, but you know we got beat by Pittsburgh the '79. They were they were a team concept, you know, because they were they always had that song, "We Are a Family." Exactly, we are yeah. family. You know, and uh, they went the same route that we were. We were earlier in the in the, in the mid '70s, and they went to '79 and '80. They were that way, and uh, they played as a family. But that's the hardest thing you, you think about is that you know if we would have kept that team together another three or four years. We'd have probably won five or six World Series. Why did the team break up? Is it is this is this the time when finally uh, free agency came into being, or what was the reasoning for it breaking up? Well, that was one of the reasons. And if you think about it, you know, they, I guess Mr. Hauslam and Mr. Wagner were so far ahead of everybody, and they were thinking of how much it would cost to pay that team. to keep that team intact, you know. And we weren't making that much money, to be honest, compared to what it is now. But, you know, I I guess they were thinking that way. And, you know, you had Tony Perez, and he was making probably a little more more than about two or $300,000. Joe Morgan, uh, Pete Rose, Johnny Bench, and then the younger guys, which was me, Foster, Concepcion, and Geronimo, were starting to make our names for ourselves. And they knew they would have to end up paying us so they, I guess they thought that way, and they started dismantling the club. And like I said, when Pete left, you know, a lot of us knew that if Pete Rose left Cincinnati, we wouldn't be – a lot of us wouldn't be around very much longer because, I mean, I mean, Pete Rose was Cincinnati or is still Cincinnati. He truly is. You're right. And and, and that and that, that's another thing that I would never cover and ask a question on because, again, it's a controversy thing. But playing with Pete Rose, I mean, I I did not like Pete Rose for one reason. I'm a Pittsburgh Pirate fan. So, you know, especially when he was the Phillies, you, 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 you ever say you're a fan of Pete Rose, for that, especially with the rivalry of the Phillies and the Pirates back in the day, you'd never say well, with Pete. But he, said, he played such he, – he was such a hard worker. For sure. Well, he was a hard worker. He was very intense. Uh, he had a lot of fun with the game. Now, he's, they, don't don't get me wrong. Now, Pete enjoyed the game to play it as a game, but he was very intense, and he wanted to win it at any cost. Didn't make any difference. And he was our catalyst. He was on base. Once he started a, a thing, it was contagious. In other words, he got a hit. I got a hit. Morgan got a hit, then Foster, then the rest of us. You know, it just went like that. As soon as, especially late in the game, but Pete started off an inning and we got a hit. We knew we were going to start to get runs at that point. So it was it was very important that, that uh, we watched Pete and, and kind of emulated him in terms of getting base hits and getting on base and doing the, the right thing to win games. Yeah, well, absolutely. And uh, another one I was a fan of was Johnny Bench. And because, again, another unbelievable. These are guys that really just hustled in so many ways. Yeah. And they really, they really showed the, the work mentality of Cincinnati playing for them. Yes, players. they did. Yes, they did. I mean, J.B. was a little different. I mean, he had a cannon for an arm, excellent catcher, did everything right. But the biggest thing I enjoyed watching J.B. is that he could definitely hit. As a right-handed hitter, you know, and uh, it didn't make any – and he hit a high fastball better than anybody ever seen hit a high fastball. I mean, you couldn't blow a high fastball by him. I'm talking about J.R. Richards, Tom Seaver, yes, and those yes. guys. You know, and uh, J.B. would hit that high fastball, and he'd drive it to right field or, or left field or center field, I mean, consistently. And uh, just to watch him play, like I said, the intensity of that, that ball club alone, uh, our ball club, we played it like a business. It was our business. We played it hard every night. We didn't make any mental mistakes. And I think that's what, what Sparky enjoyed the most about it was that we didn't make any mental mistakes. 
or we went out to play, and we didn't make very many physical mistakes in terms of errors of that of that nature either. So we just it, it, on the combination of all the things we had uh, speed, power, hit, wood average. We're able to do things, move runners, and uh, we can manufacture runs if we have to. So all those things combined made it a heck of a good team. Definitely, absolutely. And then we go with Joe Morgan, another uh, interesting player. I mean, because every one of them was somebody that I don't forget, and I I didn't live in Cincinnati. That's the the great thing. They were a national. You could remember Joe Morgan. You could remember Joe when he played till when he was a commentator. Just absolutely just an interesting player as well, for sure. Well, Joe at that time was pretty much a second manager, Uh, you know, behind Spark. He he. He was uh, he was uh, he would just do stuff that you wouldn't believe he understood what what was going on. I mean, out on the field, he was like three or four innings ahead of everybody too. Oh, yeah. Game going on, so he was like a second manager behind Sparky, and uh, it made things a little different. You're looking at a little guy. I mean, Joe was only about five seven, and he can drive the ball out of the ballpark like he's like six four, six five. Uh, good fastball hitter. Half of a glove, turn the double plays between him and David Concepcion up the middle. I think our biggest bonus was those those guys up the bench, bench Concepcion, Morgan, and Geronimo up the middle that made it a lot easier for the rest of us to play the game because, you know, the game is played up the middle. We had guys that can turn the double play. We had Geronimo who can run balls only and had, the, had one of the better arms in, in the league at that time. So we had just the best combination of, of, of all the things combined to be a good ball club ball club that uh, we, we were able to put it all together and do do the things we did being on that team how much do the fans now uh, uh the cincinnati reds fans now like when you think about the pirates and we are family because i, I again living in pittsburgh but how does the how does the cincinnati reds community love those those two years of world championships like the stories well, you're hearing all the time and all that yeah well they, they honor us almost every year uh, that's that's a strange. You know, you're you're sitting at in the say we go to a banquet or uh, or an autograph signing in Cincinnati, and they call out what we call they they they, they start naming us the Great Eight. Oh, yeah. You know, and that, and you know, I mean, that's a, a heck of an honor to be on a team that they just call you the Great Eight, and everybody knows what team it is—the big red machine, the '75 and '76. So. I mean, I, you know, I just look, I get chill bumps when they say that, you know, when they talk about the great eight and they talk about uh, me and Morgan and Foster and Geronimo and Bench and Perez and Concepcion exactly, yeah. and Rose, you know, and we, last year, two years, I think, we, it was the first time they, they honored us in Cincinnati. And it was the first time since 1976 that all of us went to our positions out on the field and uh, a great American ballpark. And we had a standing ovation. Well, you definitely, what an amazing uh, team for sure. And then the surprise, which I am looking at talking points now, I never knew that you played with the Yankees and that you played under Billy Martin. And you have Yogi Berra Berra, and then the great George Steinbrenner as your owner. So you have some stories about that as well in the book, don't you? Oh, yeah. I have a few of them in there. You know, Billy Martin, I played, well, you know, my first year, uh, we had Bob Lemon, and he only lasted two weeks. And I think we were like seven and seven, and the Steinbrenner decided, you know, uh, we weren't going very well. And he he uh, fired Bob Lemon, 
And I, I'm not sure. I think it was either Clyde King or Billy Martin came in the next. And that, like I said, I had, you know, in four and a half years in New York, you just look at it. I had nine managers. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you, you, and you, you, it was a revolving door with managers and players at that time. So uh, nothing was ever stable in, in New York those four and a half years I was there. De- definitely nothing stable. And what did you learn by playing in New York? What would you say? What? That, yeah. What did you learn from I'll, playing in New York? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what. You know, I enjoyed playing in New York because, you know, first of all, when I first got there, the maze I had to go through to get to the clubhouse in Yankee Stadium was was <laughs> terrifying. You know, you're down that little tunnel and you're trying to find your way through to, to the Yankee clubhouse and you had to go all weave through this little tunnel. But once you got on the field, I mean, it's just amazing. You played on the field with Maris, Mantle, DiMaggio, uh, Yogi Bear, you know, and, and you, you get out there and you try to do the best job you can do. And, you know, sometimes you get yourself beat up a little bit. I mean, my first couple of years, it took me a while to get used to being in New York because yeah. I came from such a conservative place in Cincinnati, and New York was just like, crazy with, you know, Steiner, if you, if you made a mistake in the outfield and he would bury you in the newspaper and, you know, the news commentators and stuff would do the same things. It, it, it's just, you know, if you do something wrong in, in, in New York, they had so much ammunition and they used to just try to bury you in New York. But if you were mentally stable or mentally strong about stuff up there in New York, you can handle it. And, you know, I had to earn my respect, which I understand, you know, and I was one of the ones that I beat him in the 70s. I was on the team that beat him in the 76 World Series. We swept him four. And I was kind of hated for a while in New York <laughs> because I was on that Reds team in 76, which we swept the Yankees for in the, in the World Series. And uh, it just took a little bit of time, and I wasn't planning on rushing my, my time. I knew I, was, I had a six- or seven-year deal. I knew I was trying to try to be there at least that long. I was there four and a half years, almost five. And I enjoyed every minute of it because they were just as knowledgeable and I, I knew for a fact that, you know, they knew about the game just as much as anybody else. The same as Cincinnati, those fans in Cincinnati and New York knew all about their players and what their players were into and everything else. And that's what they were about, you know. Then they came to cheer you on, and if you made mistakes, they let you know. But if you did well, they let you know that too. We're talking to Ken Griffey, senior author of Big Red Baseball, Fatherhood, My Life in the Big Red Machine. Uh, really an interesting story, and I didn't know about the Yankees for sure. And uh, I think that helped you a lot to, to mentor your son in a way because of going through what you went through in New York, especially when Ken Griffey Jr. was just considered just the, one of the greatest players that always that played, there always are critics out there, and I'm sure you offered advice and, and helped him mentor him in ways to go deal with the media, especially being considered one of the biggest and superstars of his time when he was playing. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of things he, he had, I knew he was going to have to go through. And you got to go through them by yourself. But, you know, I kind of clued him on certain things. You know, always be respectful to the, to the press because they can always make you or break you. And, you know, if you're, if you're respectful to the press and you do what you're supposed to do and talk to them, even if you have a bad day and you sit there and you answer questions, they'll respect you more than you can ever imagine. If you sit there and you answer the question and you, and you don't put anything on anybody else and you take the, take the brunt of it like you're supposed to as, as you look at it and you say, hey, I did this, I did that, and, you know, my responsibility. And, and they'll respect you for that. But uh, don't shy away from them. 
don't pretend you don't want to talk to them or anything because they will, you know, eventually they, they can get you. And uh, I kind of try to make him understand that a little bit. Sometimes he didn't get that way because he was so young, he was so shy, and he just didn't like talking. You know, he, I mean, it wasn't that he didn't want to deal with the press. He just did not like to talk. Oh, wow. And, and later on, he started to come out of it and, and made it a little different, a little easier for him. At, you know, but he understood what I was talking about. Did you always know he was going to be that good when you were uh, when he was a kid? Did you have the feeling? Well, the, the the biggest thing was, you know, uh, he used to get himself in little trouble uh, <laughs> at home. Now, he was living in Cincinnati because, you know, I was in New York and I'd get traded there, and he was still playing ball in Cincinnati. He didn't want to make too many trips. He didn't want to go in the summer because he wanted to play ball. So he got himself in trouble a little bit, and he, you know, his mom sent him up to me and. The, you know, we I was sitting there telling him, I said, you do know right from wrong. We went through that whole synopsis of being right, being wrong, and everything, and being a parent. And I said, do you want to go hit? He said, yeah. So I would take him down to, to the um, cage in Yankee Stadium, and I would teach him a lot about hitting. You know, I'd throw batting practice to him. I'd throw him fastballs and curveballs and change-ups, you know, and he told me he wanted to be a major league player. And I said, this is why we're going to work it. And I worked it. So by the time he was 14 years old, uh, I couldn't strike him out. So I knew I had something pretty special at that time. You you definitely did have something special. Uh, Again, uh, Ken Griffey Sr. giving us a story of uh, Ken Griffey Jr. And when you saw his career and you look back, did you expect this? Did you think in, in a lot of ways that once he started playing, he was going to be that good? Uh, especially, well, you yeah. know, yeah. When, when I started playing with him, you know, when I got to Seattle and I'm playing left field and I'm watching him play center <laughs> yeah, field, that's and that's when, it, yeah, that's when it really hit me. I said, wow, I didn't know he was that good because some of the plays he was making in the outfield and then, you know, at the plate, he can almost predict what he was going to do and how he was going to go about it. And, you know, it was amazing to watch him, watch him do all those things. But uh, I, I really didn't think I had that, that good of a player until I actually started playing with him in, in uh, Seattle in 91, 90 and 91. He was one of my uh, favorite players, especially when the Pirates stopped having a team. That's the kind of a joke in a way, because uh, the Pirates, with the whole small, small market thing, Ken Griffey Jr. was just my favorite because he just was amazing player and really uh, just he was exciting. And, and any time you could just say, I'll, I'll choose a player because I'm not going to think about Barry Bonds anymore. There, there, there was the guy, and that was uh, definitely your son, uh, Ken. So how difficult was it to write the book when you were asked to write this book, especially about the big red machine and all these different things. I'm sure you were excited to do it, but did you ever undertake uh, something as uh, complex as writing about your story and stuff? Well, yeah, I mean, there was a lot of things that, you know, it it took me almost 10 years to really uh, decide what I was going to do. I mean, after I retired and after playing with Junior, it was my first father and son ever playing in the big league. So I thought about that, and I thought about, my time in New York, uh, the, the five, four and a half years there, and then early in my career when I played with the Big Red Machine. So I, it took me a while, you know, and, uh, you know, finally I got with uh, Pepe and sat down with him, and uh, oh, actually a guy named Tom Bast, you know, uh, he was one of the people from uh, Trials Books, you know, sat down with me, and he said, we think you have a, some something to talk about, you know, in a book. And it just took me a long time to really say how, how am I going to go about doing it, you know. 
and how am I going to do it the right way? I'm, a, you know, I'm not out for bashing anybody or anything of that nature, just telling us the stories that just happened to me in, in the book and what, what was, it was, was my, my life and no one else's, and that's the way we went about doing it. Well, most definitely, and I'm sure now finally seeing the finished product, you're so excited, especially to get and do uh, book signings. And I, I understand you did one in Cincinnati, but you're going to do one in New York and then again in Cincinnati. So there are definitely fans of yours, not just in the uh, Cincinnati area, and, and they remember your time in New York. And again, uh, with your son and all this, the interest is definitely more than just Cincinnati for the, the concept, especially you're going to be going to New York and for the book signing as well. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna be doing a couple in the, probably in New York and a couple back in Cincinnati. Hopefully, we'll get to Seattle and do one or two in Seattle uh, before the the years out. So we'll see how all that works out. And uh, you like talking to the fans about the memories? Is it interesting when they come up and talk to you about ask you questions and stuff? Yeah, if they ask me questions there in the book, yeah, I talk to them all the time about it. You know, they want to know the uh, the whole thing of what went, went on. You know, so yeah, I talk to them when they when they, when I'm signing the, uh, the book and all that, and they ask me a certain question. I, I don't mind answering them. I'll tell them what's going on. <laughs> and how's your son? Has your son gotten a chance to read the book and stuff? And what is his thoughts, especially? No, he hasn't got a chance yet. I mean, I gave him a book. Matter of fact, I gave it to him last month, but he's been running. He was out here now. You know, his his daughter's uh, at the University of Arizona. She got a basketball scholarship, so he's been out here, and his son's already out here at the University of Arizona on a football scholarship. So he's been busy trying to get her out here, get her settled in and everything else for the last couple of weeks. So I told him, I said, you get a chance, read it, you know. <laughs> so I think his wife has read some of it, but she hasn't told me anything yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't know about that, so that's something else for our fans to know about what Ken Griffey's Jr., how he has uh, his kids uh, continue to be great athletes as well. That's fantastic. Oh, yeah. Know, yeah. Yeah, both one has a basketball scholarship, Terrence. She'll be a freshman this year. And then Trey will be a junior, a sophomore, and he's going to be a wide out. He'll be starting this year. I mean, he's 6'5". He's a big kid. So, you know, uh, he I watched him last year in the African Bowl. He had two touchdowns in the African Bowl, and they, they beat up uh, Boston College pretty good. And that was his opportunity. You know, he showed, did well, and now he's going to probably be starting uh, this this uh winter or this uh, fall in, at the University of Arizona. Oh, well, fantastic. It looks like uh, Ken Griffey Jr. has learned from you on uh, being a great father, especially yesterday being Father's Day, and uh, is able to get his kids to uh, excel in athletics as well. So, Ken, where can we purchase your book and also learn more about you? Uh, well, you can get it on, on uh, Amazon.com, and I think it's uh, Barnes & Noble. They have uh, books in uh, Barnes & There's a lot of them, and I know there's a few of them at Kroger's, that they sell out of Kroger's, uh, books, uh, book department and stuff. So those are the places, and you can get them online. I said at Amazon, you can get it online. Well, fantastic. I really enjoyed talking with you, uh, Ken. Do you have any – are you on the social media end? Do you have a Facebook uh, fan page or Twitter or anything? Not yet. No, not yet. No, I'm working on it, though. I'm working on it. Honestly, I'm going to be honest with you, Ken. Twitter is just absolutely amazing how you can connect with so many people and how quickly you can become relevant again in in this in this field, especially when you have a book to sell and also trying to tell your story. You wouldn't believe okay. how ch- powerful Twitter is, but good talking to you, Ken. All right. Thank you. I appreciate it. I enjoyed the conversation. Thanks again for calling.
All right, take care. You're listening to the Authors Corner on the Toll Education Network, and we'll be back in just a moment. (laughs) 